worship team as well, and um, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Sorry to miss Pastor Ryan. I saw Pastor Rod earlier at the 9 o'clock service, so uh, we have been here before. Um, thank you for Pastor Joaquin. He did marry my oldest daughter, Megan, right here, and uh, my wife, Tammy, which I won't embarrass her, but she's with me as well. So we have a very large, looming, enormous task to watch five grandchildren this week while Megan, Pastor uh, Joaquin and Megan are gone for the week. So we're privileged to do that. We'll be here next week for Father's Day. I hope you'll do the same, and we're looking forward to it. As, as mentioned, my wife and I, um, I know I don't look that um, old. My hair is actually really brown. I go to the same hairdressers, my wife, and so they've worked at getting a, a great gray look because it shows a sign of wisdom or he had. So that's, that's not true. Uh, what is true is that we spent almost 20 years up at a place called Northland in Green Bay, Wisconsin, north of that. Then we spent just south of 20 years out in an island called Guam and uh, pastored out there. And now we're in Iowa at a place called Faith Baptist Bible College. We've been there for going into now our fifth year. So it's kind of like the icebox, the oven, and now like the chiller. So we live in a refrigerator up there in Iowa. But uh, all those years, we do have 15 grandchildren. We have four married children, 15 grandchildren. So <clears throat> we're thankful for them. They're like therapy. So if you hear the herons went into counseling, we have 15 therapy sessions. So we get five of them today. Out in Guam, uh, we spent those years, and um, it, it's a small island, part of the uh, Micronesian Islands. Uh, it's the westernmost U.S. territory. Had a lot of amazing opportunities to work in and out of the church. We had an academy, college, uh, um, radio station, and an orphanage ministry. <clears throat> but in those years, um, I made a big decision. I think a good decision. I want to talk today about decisions. Let me illustrate it this way briefly. I made a decision in 2006. I was 50 years old, and I wanted to do something that I hadn't done before. Uh, and that was skydive. Anybody been skydiving before? Okay, great. <coughs> and so uh, it was so good at 50 that I did it again at 60. So it was like my birthday present from the deacons. My wife just rolled her eyes like one of the ladies did back here at her husband <laughs> as well. Um, but uh, she, she gave my reluctant permission. So I, I thought it was a good decision. I have no regrets about it, okay? Good decision, no regrets. Some of you think that's really a dumb decision, but... That's what it was. Now, I'm going to use this as an illustration, um, and I'm going to come back to it at the end for another application. Uh, so I, 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 I went through the whole process. You actually don't go by yourself. You can, but I went tandem. So I had another expert on my back strapped in. We go up in this plane, 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet, 14,000 feet. You get to 14,000 feet, that's where you have actually a minute and a half, almost two minutes of skydiving. It's, it's an amazing experience. If I had known how good it was, I would have started way earlier. I wouldn't have any money to do it, but nonetheless, it was great. There's only one moment of, of, of a check, rally check, is when you're sitting, because I was one of the last one out at 14,000 feet, and I'm strapped to this guy, and he says, now, three, two, one, we jump, and I'm like, I'm jumping out a perfectly good airplane, and, and sure enough, that's what you do. And as soon as you jump out, you're like, whew. And, and eventually, when you get situated, and again, this guy's like the expert. He's like whispering to me what to do. And you can't believe the freedom that you have in all of this. 
uh, you, you can turn right, you can turn left, and it's just like you're really enraptured in all that's going on. The best part to this is, uh, uh, among other things, you can actually get a whole view of where you're going. For us, we lived on an island, 20 by 10. I can see the whole island. I actually kind of like, oh, I remember being up here in Talafofo, and, and um, uh, I could see where generally, where, where the ministry was, the church and our home, and you're getting so caught up into that. I thought it was a good decision. And as I said, I, I, I did it twice. But it did teach me that there's value of kind of stepping back and, and looking at and, and realizing, you know what, this is a good perspective. I think this is a good decision. Now, if you can toggle to today, I think what I want to focus in on, and we preached through this series of Ephesians years ago, and I titled it Living in a Pagan World, subtitled How to Make Good Decisions with Less Regrets. So I want to talk about today decision-making because that's exactly where Paul ends up going. Now, many of you that were here last week heard Pastor Roberts. I think he's a tremendous preacher. Pastor Ryan is also. He was a student of ours, Pastor Ryan, like eons ago when he was young and, and strong and still athletic. I'm sure he still is today, but you can ask him. He was a great basketball player and a good man, and I'm thankful that he's here in the leadership with he and Rod. But I say this because uh, Pastor Rod and I listened to his message last night late, a tremendous job in laying out how we walk. So your focus is walk this way. And that walking, actually, it's a Hebrew term, which means to live. The Hebrews looked at how we live and is how we walk a series of steps in the right direction. That's literally what the word means. And so as you know, the whole book of Ephesians is helping people in their, if I can say it, their wealth in Christ. That's the doctrine, chapter 1, 2, 3. So classic Pauline. In chapter 4 and 5, he talks about uh, walking with Christ. And then chapter 6, towards the very end, he tucks this little uh, warring for Christ and the battles that we go. But we still have to make decisions. And Paul knows this, so chapter 5, that Rod talked about walking in love and last week walking in the light, but he, he Paul, toggles and switched to an idea about making wise decisions. The text that we read actually picks up the section. If you have your Bibles, turn there and turn to verse 15, because I think it's worth tying in 15 and 16 with verse 17, and he talks about wise decisions because we can all make bad decisions. The people at Ephesus had been making bad decisions. For those of you that were here, you know that the idea in verse 15, see that you walk circumspectly. The idea of walking or, or taking a series of steps is not the first time he mentions this. Actually, walking in love and walking in light, now walking in wisdom, Previously in chapter 4, he says, walk worthy. And then he says in verse 17, you don't walk henceforth as other Gentiles, unsaved people. Don't walk like that. They walk in the vanity, the emptiness of their mind. And it says in verse 18, having the understanding darkened. In other words, they didn't have an understanding. 
they were making bad decisions. And bad decisions complicate life. Bad decisions limit your options. And, when, and th that's exactly what our whole world does today. So when they came to Christ, he's saying, listen, you walk in love. You have love one another. You walk in the light. You're not in darkness. And then he pulls all those together, and he says, let me give me two more, uh, what we would call as indicatives, okay? Uh, and so I want to put it as two indicatives to diminish the drama. That's what I want to talk about in the time we have, okay? And what I mean by that is... He says, first of all, we are commanded to have a careful watch. Some of you that have a Bible use the term in verse 15. See then, do you see it, that you walk circumspectly? It's the idea of the word circumspect is not like we use that all the time at all today, but it's kind of a good word because it's made of two words, circle and spect or glasses, see. So you're seeing all around. That means you're seeing through things, you're seeing by things, but you are seeing all around. You get the big picture. You, you're up this high. You can see how life is coming at you, and you don't want to make bad decisions because it's complicating life. You want to make good decisions. And he says this for really uh, the whole idea of, and if I could put it this way, and he's saying be spiritually smart. Be spiritually smart. That, that's what he's talking about, the idea of, do you see it in verse 15? Don't be as fools, but be as wise. He says it again in verse 17. And the idea is the antithetical statement, don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. And this is why the idea of being spiritually smart, you've got to do the wisest thing. Some of you that are parents uh, of teenagers... The question is, well, is that right thing to do? Rightness has got kind of so fuzzy that for this generation, we call them the Gen Zers, Gen Y, those of you that are millennials, Gen Zers, those are in going into college, high school, college, and just out of that, or Gen Z. The next big phase, by the way, sociologically, is Gen A. These are those that are six, seven, eight years old. That's Gen A. That's where the marketers are actually profiling right now. If you're a Gen Zer, the tendency is that, that somewhere over your, your next 10 years or so, you have the major decisions of life. Your commitment level to Christ, the college you choose or not choose, your, your companion who's going to get in your wagon with you, your career, and lastly, your view of Christian liberty, what you can do, what you can't do. And that's where it gets fuzzy because it's like, well, it's, is that really right or not? And so the best question that Paul's saying is, particularly if those of your parents helping your child is, is that the wise thing to do? Johnny, was that the wisest thing to do to hit your sister? Johnny, was it the wisest thing to do to get on your bike and go down there? And I told you not to go down there. I get about right and wrong, but I'm telling you, Paul's emphasis is how do we walk? We walk in wisdom. And so he expands this by saying, here's the critical questions. You see it in verse 15 and 17. It's a question of surroundings. You look all around you. In other words, where is this going to take me? 
I want to be able to see big enough so if I keep going in this direction, where is this going to take me? Second is, it's the idea of time and the question of time in verse 16. Redeem the time. Literally, like a merchant buying back the opportunities. And in this case, he's saying the opportunities and asking the question, what is this going to cost me? You can do this, but if you do this, is that going to be complicating your life? Is that bad decision going to complicate your life? So the question is, what is this going to cost me? Because the idea of, of um, a question of uh, redeeming the time because the days, those literally physical days, and then the bigger scope, the time, is the idea of this eon or the season, is uh, evil. That's the term he used. Do you see this? He says the word evil, literally it has to do of moral corruptness that we're living in a day in which, as one person said, our world's not crazy, it's just lost its moral base. So for Paul writing to this church at Ephesus, they were living in the city of Ephesus in which the primary commerce was religion. A Princess Diane, who everybody worshipped what they called Artemis, this huge idol that basically uh, you paid for sexual favors, and it was all lumped together. And Paul's saying, listen, this is uh, not right because there is a right and wrongness. And what was happening in Paul's day, that the, what the world was saying is a hot tub is actually a cesspool. So you have a world that is being said, this is good. But that's like, no, it's actually not. So Paul gets to verse 17 and says, it's not just a question of surroundings and a question of time, but it's a question of spiritual intelligence. This is why he uses the term understanding Wherefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what are we supposed to understand? It's the idea of, of, of putting a puzzle together. You have understanding when you can take these pieces and put those together. When you see people doing well in life and making good decisions with less regrets, these are people that have been able to put life together. And most of the time, that also, that word understanding is kind of like they see the light rather than living in darkness that he mentions. He said, they're understanding the will of the Lord. How should you pray for your child? How should you pray for your coworker? And this is why Paul uses this term and he ties it back to Ephesians 1.17. This is the term that he uses in 1.17. He says, I'm praying for you people in Ephesus. I'm praying for you that you would cease not to give thanks, making mention of you in my prayers. And this is what he says. I'm praying that God would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and that your eyes of understanding would be enlightened. How many times have you had to make decisions and you just didn't have enough pieces? You, it was a little dark and you're like, oh, but I got to make this decision about maybe it's a big decision. Where, where do I, what, what job do I take? Uh, what should I not take? And it seems like it's dark to that. So the best way that you could pray and you could pray for your own children is, I'm praying every day, God, that their eyes or their understanding would be enlightened. Literally, it's where we get the word, the lights turned on, the photos turned on. 
Some of you might remember the Old Testament story of the prophet with his, his uh, uh, worker, and they were surrounded by the enemy, and the worker came out, and he's like, we're dead. The whole enemy is around us, and Elijah says, God, open his eyes. And then all of a sudden, he saw all of the spiritual forces, and the angels is like, okay, we're good. So they understood. His lights were turned on. This is why Paul, a rabbi, says, listen, I'm praying that your understanding would be enlightened. So in decision-making, Paul's saying, listen, you look all around. You have this answering the question of spiritual intelligence. The eyes are open, and this is answering the question, what would be my legacy? What's my legacy to this? If I decide to do this, where is this going to take me? And some, listen, listen to me, sometimes the smallest decisions become the biggest issues. And be careful about that. I wish we had time uh, because another Old Testament example is David, who in Psalm 142, if you just want to make a note to it, or 143, he prayed, teach me to do thy will. Teach me to do thy will. And actually, he goes on to say, you're my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. That's what David prayed. Teach me to do that will. Now, when did David say that? Some of you that love your Psalms and some of you that know the Bible, teach me to do that will. When did David say that? And I'm going to tell you when he said it. He said it back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where he was in a cave by the, uh, the uh, brook in Gedi. All wilderness, you went a little farther and you'd be down in Masada. Some of you have been in Israel. And he had been kicked out of the castle, out of the White House by, by Saul. And he's now in a cave with a bunch of his men, randomly in this cave. Some of them were small, some were big. There's a big. And randomly, here's Saul with 3,000 men coming down along uh, the bottom of the hill, and he randomly stops, and Saul says, I got to relieve myself. And so he doesn't go by the gas station and borrow the bathroom. He goes up the hill and randomly, among all of the different caves, picks that cave. And he steps into the cave, and it's dark, and he can't see anything. His eyes aren't adjusted. And, and guess what cave it is? Exactly. It's the cave that David and his men are in. And the men start whispering and saying, David, God put him into our hands. I mean, that's how we've been praying. And the Bible says David arose and he cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. Now, how all this happens, I don't know. I've read this. I'm like, how in the world did this guy not know that there was a dude cutting this part of his pants off? I don't know how that works. I know it did. I know that Saul left. And somewhere between the back of the cave and the back of Saul, the king, David decided, I'm not going to do that. And he didn't. I mean, it was logical. Why would I not kill the king? You can just think logic through as David was like, that makes sense. I mean, good night out of all the caves. He picked this one. We're here. We've been praying. God, providentially, you brought this guy along and... My problem's done. We get to go back to the, I'm the king, get to go back to the castle. Who's messing around for years in the wilderness? His own men were telling him, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it because he knew what is going to be my legacy. 
You know what my legacy is going to be? Yeah, David's the one that took the life. God didn't give David the king, the kingdom. He took it. And you got to start telling your kids and your grandkids, yeah, what happened to, yeah, actually, I killed him. Rather than God promised me this kingship when I was 16 years old and reaffirmed it. And, and so out of David's humility, Saul was humiliated. Stood to the cave, Saul, and he stooped and he bowed. And that's what you call in decision-making, you be careful that you're, it's, it could be logical, it's not theological. You be careful in big decisions to say, God, I need your understanding, and I need to make sure and answer the question, the surroundings, the time, and the spiritual intelligence. You know, if you understand all that, I think it's important to note that Paul here and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit pivots and says, now let me give you the other indicative. Let me give you the imperative that daily the tense is an ongoing idea in Ephesians 5 as we close. Do you see it? He says it in verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine where it's excessive. Be filled with the Spirit. Why does the world does he say that? He ties in the idea of being intoxicated and being filled with the Spirit. And if it wasn't inspired, you'd kind of go like, how in the world did Paul ever get that idea? But this is the other imperative, and I jotted a note from a guy named John Phillips in the commentary. This is what he says, and I think it's a good thing to understand, and, and wherever you see where alcohol is in your life, this is what I think is worth to know, that Paul is saying, you can make all the decisions you want and take all the credit, but the reality is, if you're a believer, Paul's saying, listen, you be controlled by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God will help you in this decision-making, and your walk just as all the rest of the walks. So how does he say it? Philip says this way, listen, drink is temporarily transforms a person's personality, and there's no such thing as permanent intoxication. And being intoxicated illustrates kind of in reverse of being filled with the Spirit, and to be filled with the Spirit is a deliberate choice, and being filled with the Spirit is a daily decision. It's a one-time act of being indwelt and baptized and the sealing and the gifts that God gives to us. But the daily decision to be filled is not like, is not like a filling of a glass, but it is a permeation of my decision-making by the Spirit of God. And this is why Paul says, listen, to you church at Ephesus, you be controlled and intoxicated and directed and controlled by the Spirit of God. And when you do that, then your decision-making doesn't have to be bad. It can be good because it's God-directed. So obviously, they're like, well, if I'm being filled by the Spirit, how do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? In our spirit and our attitude is so affected in our approach to life that he says, here's exactly like clues that you're spirit-filled. And this is in the context of the church. He does move to the next section of in the home, but this one's about the church. So how does he say it? He says it very simply by um, a, a spiritual voice. He says, uh, speaking to yourselves... 
in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we don't have time to get into all that, but psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In a church setting, those are the three types of songs that you end up having. Psalms that are more spiritual um, in its nature and scripturally soaked. Hymns are doctrinally driven, and spiritual songs are more of testimonies about what God's done. All of those are, are taking the place. And it's interesting to note, by the way, on the note, on the side, in the New Testament, music, the focus is always about the text. You don't see it about the tune. So it's when you take this idea of singing and the spiritual singing, it shows you the idea that actually with music, it takes you places. It paints pictures to you. That's why music is one of the more powerful forces in our own worship to get our focus towards who God is. Then he says, secondly, in verse um, uh, 20, he says, have a thankful attitude. Be thankful. So this is in the context of a church. How do you know a a church is spirit-filled? There's awesome worship uh, and singing. There is a thankful spirit. Actually, the word thank is, has the same idea where we get the word think. You're giving thankful, if you can say it that way, gratitude to God himself and the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. When you have a church, there is a church. Your church here has a DNA. You're a body, and every body has a DNA. You're merging with another church that's had a DNA for a long time. You're merging two bodies into one. you got to decide, what is our DNA? If you take the word DNA, Paul's emphasis, even in the book of Ephesians, is its doctrine. It's driven by your theology. Your nature of your church is driven by your traditions. And you have certain traditions. There's other churches that have different traditions. But the A is the atmosphere of a church. That's driven by how you see Christian liberty that involves all of these we're talking about. That's your DNA, your doctrine, your nature, your atmosphere. You know why people come to your church or come to your church as it becomes a larger church? It's your atmosphere. They don't really know your doctrine because they haven't seen it. They might have read it on your website. They don't really know the nature of church, but they know the atmosphere of your church. That's what people are drawn to. Man, these people are so kind. They're so loving. They... Something's driving them. Then you get the opportunity to to get them to say, this is why we have a a spiritual voice, a thankful attitude, and lastly, verse 21, a submissive life, a willingness to say, God, I'm doing what you want me to do. It's the idea of patiently putting yourself under. It's like not racing to the front of the line. It's racing to the back of the line. Most of your children, like my grandchildren, that's not in their nature. I want that. I need that. Me first. Give me the donut. So it's this submission competition. Let's compete to see who's the most submissive. And is that the wisest thing to do, driven by the Holy Spirit? And if you can imagine this, you can imagine a life of continual wise decisions that are led by God's Spirit. That's what that text is saying. So you ask yourself the question every day, God, I got to be careful. I be spirit controlled. And do you do that? Because when you don't, your bad decisions are going to complicate your life. And there's no humility there. But when you have humility, like we're talking about, humility is the runway to harmony in a church. 
Humility is your runway to harmony in your home as he gets to and eventually into your workplace. So I started with an illustration. I'll close with this because um, another lesson that I learned off my skydiving. One was I'm getting the big picture and this is an amazing picture. And I'm skydiving. Halfway into that about two minutes that I mentioned, I realized I'm, I'm flying. I am flying. I mean, I'm, I'm turning left and I'm turning right. And, and then just about 40 seconds before we're supposed to land, I hear this whisper, oh, pull the parachute. And at that moment, I realized I'm not, I'm not flying. As I'm enraptured, what's going on? I'm falling. I'm falling. And if I don't do something about it, I'm dead. I'm dead. You know, and as simple as that is, and I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but you got people that are flying through life. Some of you are flying through life. Plenty of money, family's good, everything's great. And then somewhere along the line, you realized you're not doing that well. Because there's going to be a day you're going to breathe your last. And if you don't change, alter your course, you don't do something. I hate to use the idea of salvation as like a parachute. But if you don't do something, you're dead. Because we all die. But with Jesus Christ, he's given us a way of salvation. He's given us a way out. And the emphasis of Paul in Ephesians, as well as the rest of his four prison epistles, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners just like us. That's what we use the word gospel hope, that God offers sinful people eternal life. That's a great acrostic for gospel. That God offered, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave to sinful people. Eternal life is not a destination. It's a person. I am the way, the truth, the life. And unless you take Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you, you as simple as ABC, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin. And as I repent and call upon the Lord, he'll save me. And then he gives you that empowerment like a whisper from a guy that was attached to me on a skydiving, that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And he says, I'll tell you what to do. You listen to his whispers by his word. This is how you know it's right or not. And this is the key to being careful and being spirit-controlled. That's the emphasis that the Spirit of God leaves with us today. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for these good folks and listening so very well. We, we, in and of ourselves, have no good thing. We don't have enough wisdom. And sometimes we can logic our way right through a decision, right through life. And the reality is it's not spirit-controlled. It might be logical. It's not theological. And help us not to be unwise, but to be wise. Help us not to be controlled by ourselves, be co controlled by the Spirit. That affects us in our church. It affects us in our homes. It affects us at work. Even for some here today that might have a Saul in their life, like David, 
that had all the right in the world logically to kill his authority and get rid of him. Some folks here today might be in a work environment where they feel leveraged. They're pushed into the minority. And people are saying what's right is wrong, what's wrong is right, and it gets confusing. And they feel pressured. Help them to, to think theologically. Help them to say, God, is this the wisest thing to do? And by your spirit, this church would move forward and grow and make a difference in the city of Atlanta. And we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.